Uh, I had been preparing discussions uh, around all these New Testament letters. Really wanted to spend some time in the Old Testament looking at the mission of God. And uh, it turned out to have a whole lot of scripture as we sort of do a bit of an introduction to covenant theology. And we're going to look at the covenants in the scriptures and how they point us to God's purpose and God's mission and what his, uh, what his ultimate accomplishment will be and how things will work out in the end. As we know from Isaiah that God knows the end from the beginning and that we see very clearly through each of the covenants this bigger story, this bigger mission of God being uh, expanded and revealed to us throughout the whole counsel of God. So let me read our sort of summary passage, Jeremiah 31. And Jeremiah 31 to 33 is this big teaching around the new covenant. And in the new covenant is included all the covenants of the Old Testament, which are the Abraham, uh, sorry, the Adam, Abraham, Noah, uh, Moses, David. So here we will read... Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'll make a a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I'll make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you, thank you that it is lasting, everlasting. Lord, we thank you that you have given it to us in the canon of Scripture. And Lord, we just pray that it would bear fruit in our lives, that we would be people of the word, and that would be evident in every aspect of our life. Lord, as we come to look at your covenants, the, uh, that you are a faithful God, to your prom- uh, you are a faithful to your promises, Lord, would you give us revelation, would you give us wisdom, would you give us uh, uh, understanding into this great mystery that is your uh, gospel of Jesus Christ, that is you bringing together the church from every nation, tongue and tribe uh, under you, where you have washed sin from them and cast it as far as the east is from the west, that a people for your own possession will be forevermore without exception, Lord, we know that is to be true. And Lord, we see that painted uh, and revealed over time throughout Scripture, through the people of Israel. And may we come to just slightly get a taste of these covenants and realize the weight of covenants in your word and the weight of a covenant in our life today. Uh, Lord, as we, yeah, as we soak these Scriptures up, as, as you, you lead us here, would you be glorified and would Christ be proclaimed and the, the gospel be evident to us once more. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this week we've been looking at the mission of God and I've deliberately uh, done something quite unusual which is not look at the evangelistic passages. Of course I've mentioned the Great Commission, we've touched on the fact that Peter tells us that we should have a reason for the hope that, uh, that we have in Christ, but deliberately 
I have thought about the mission of God as the church. Taking the line from the great hymn, The Church's One Foundation, I've looked at uh, from heaven he came and sought her. From heaven he came and sought her. Christ came from heaven. He died on the cross, crucified, dead and was buried and rose on the third day to claim his bride. The mission of God has always been to have a redeemed people for himself from every tribe, people, tongue and language. It is for him and his glory that they would live in his land and under his rule. So I think it's important when we look at the mission of God that it's not just always about the evangelistic efforts that we must do, but also the internal work that must be happening in the church. As I stated on the first day that uh, Aaron Wren wrote a, 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 an article that quoted, uh, that I'm quoting him, that he said the church is in a, a, in a state of decline and what we need to do is come back to look internally and spend time building holiness, spend time building culture, spend time building a character so that in 10 years time we can go forth and proclaim the gospel. Now I don't agree with that entirely. I think we should continue to proclaim the gospel, but I think we do need to have an emphasis on building good Christian community so that when we call people out of darkness, they have something to come to. That they don't look at their bikey gang, look at their sports club, look at their mates at the pub and go, you know what, I think I've got something better there. If that is the comparison that the church can be compared to another club or another community group or another gym, then the church has failed. But the mission of God is not just that he will save individual Christians, but he'll save a people. A people who are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people that are his own. And we want to uphold this in our church. We want to live as that, but we need to undo a lot of baggage that we've had in the past and we need to redo... Uh, a not redo, but apply ourselves to the scripture. One of the areas that I think has somewhat been forgotten or not, maybe not as, as much taught on, at least in the circles that I've grown up in, is covenant theology. The understanding of really God's mission through covenants, starting in Genesis 1 and going all the way uh, through to the New Testament, where we see, of course, the covenant of Christ's blood, which we uh, take every week in communion or remind ourselves of every week in communion. So if we're going to do a bit of a survey of the Old Testament, we've got uh, heaps of scripture to look at. So mostly, I guess, this is going to be the word of God speaking with a few comments about the different covenants and then a summary in Jeremiah 31 and 33 about how all these covenants are fulfilled um, and made new in Christ. So let's look at Genesis 1, Genesis 1, 26 to 28. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And let us have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. The male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill and fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over every living thing that moves on the earth. There's nothing really more clear in Genesis 1 than the fact that God deliberately created a man and a woman uh, to, to image, to bear his image. It, it, this, this phrase, let us make, 
is a clear statement of intention, of, of design, of thoughtfulness, that this people, man and woman, would bear his image and fill the earth with his image by having dominion over other bits of creation and foreshadowing or showing off God as the one who ultimately has dominion over the whole earth. I think it's important that we spend time, and as we did spend time in Genesis, but continually come back to Genesis 1 and 2 as it reveals so much of God's intention and purpose for life as Christians, as His image bearers. But right from the get-go, we see that God's purpose from the beginning was a people, man and woman. It would not stay just a man and a woman, but they would be fruitful and multiply across all the earth. Interestingly, God doesn't put them out in the world. He puts them in a garden where he dwells. And if we go to Genesis 2, this is where we start to see the first covenant. Genesis 2, 10 to 14 says, A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first was Pishon. Uh, it, it is the one that flowed from a, around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of the land is good. Delium and onyx stones are there. The name of the second river is Gohon, Gohon, and it is the one that flowed around the whole of Cush. And the name of the third river is Tigris, and it flows east of Assyria, and the fourth river is Euphrates. Now this is the image of a temple. The temple starts at the top of the ultimate glory and it flows down in, into lesser glories. We see this in the design of the tabernacle and then the temple, that we have God on the, uh, the mercy seat that is above the cherubim and the cherubim below and the seraphim below that. What God is designing in the garden and where he put man was in his dwelling spot. The Garden of Eden flowed down from one degree of glory to another and man was put in that place. God's purpose from the beginning was that we would dwell in God's holy place. From the beginning we were to dwell in God's holy place. This is a great truth that we should hold on to and treasure this image that we were meant to be in the holy of holies, the place that was cut off from the Israelites, which we will see in the covenant to Moses. But from the very beginning in Genesis 2, the purpose is set, it's clear intention that we will dwell with God in his holy place. And the covenant comes in in verse 15 of chapter 2. The Lord took man and put him in the garden, put him in the holy of holies to work it and keep it. The Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in that day you eat of it, it sh you shall surely die. God puts, his, puts man in the dwelling place of God, puts us in the holy of holies, the, the most glorious place that he could, to work it and keep it, to extend the borders of the Garden of Eden, to take the Garden of Eden and to have dominion over the whole earth. As image bearers of God, the whole purpose was that the culture of the Garden of Eden would infuse itself throughout the whole world. And the first covenant was, eat of everything, enjoy everything, have all that you want, but with one no, do not eat of this tree. Of course, 
Many have said, what was the purpose of the tree? As we don't know all things, the secret things belong to God, as Deuteronomy 29, 29 tells us. Some things we will never know, but it seems that the purpose of the tree was that obedience was better. Obedience to God is always better. If we stay in obedience to God, it would have been better for us. Yet, God's purpose and God ordained that the fall would take place, as we see in Genesis 20, uh, 50, 20, that, the, that what we meant for evil, God meant for good. God meant the fall for good, and we can say nothing other than He meant it to happen. He ordained it to happen. If He didn't ordain it to happen, God is not sovereign. But God ordained that this would take place for our good, that we would know the fullness of His grace, the fullness of His mercy, the fullness of His compassion, and that He would have a redeemed people for Himself. The fall takes place, and the, broken, uh, the breaking of the first covenant happens on our behalf, of man's behalf. Man is now saturated in the sin of Adam and the blood of Adam, and we are looking for the new offspring, the offspring that would crush the serpent's head. And comes our second covenant in Genesis chapter 9, 1 to 13. God said to Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you and as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat, eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your life, blood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, from, uh, require it and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made him in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all the flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood that destroys the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you. For all future generations, I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. What we saw in Genesis 1 and 2 was that God's purpose was that man would dwell with him forever and extend work and keep the boundaries of the Holy of Holies into the world. Sin has come in and fractured our relationship with God or decimated our relationship with God. We are dead in our trespasses and sin. So much so that God in Genesis 6 said that every intention and inclination of man's heart was evil always. We looked at that a few, uh, well, probably a year or so ago now. That's a heavy statement. Every intention of a man's heart is evil always. John Piper has said that even when we do good, there is an inclination of selfishness behind it. What we see God do here is foreshadow a judgment upon the world. 
but in the same breath of foreshadowing a decreation, decreating the whole earth through a flood and putting mankind unto the death that they deserve, he once again makes a covenant with man. This covenant is very similar to the first covenant. Be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. It has a new exception to it. But he will never cut off the earth again with a flood. Doesn't mean he won't judge nations as he judges Egypt and Assyria and Babylon and eventually Israel. But he will not flood the whole earth and wipe out the majority of the earth. The promise is that God will endure with great patience, compassion, graciousness and mercy towards people he created. The command is still be fruitful and multiply. Take forth the image of God. Take forth his character, his loving kindness. Take forth his steadfastness and have dominion in the world with his image. Then interestingly, we get to Abraham. We know that what follows from Genesis 9 to Genesis 12 is Noah's descendants being multiplying and having dominion, but having dominion for themselves. The Tower of Babylon, we see them go off to Ur of the Chaldeans, we see all sorts of pagan rituals. In fact, Abraham comes from a pagan culture, a moon worshipper. And we get to Genesis 12, Genesis 15, and Genesis 17, which is the covenant, the, uh, the covenant to Abraham. We're not going to look at all of those. We're going to look at Genesis 15. And interestingly, listen to the way this is phrased. He says, And he brought him outside and said, uh, Sorry, Genesis 15, uh, 5 and 6. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven. Number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Notice the first two covenants, the one with Adam and the one with uh, Noah, said be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Now God says to Abraham, look at the stars. I will make you as many as the stars. Who's going to be fruitful and multiply? God is now taking ownership of the covenant and proving that man has failed to uphold their side of the covenant and has had dominion for their own flesh, their own, their own uh, desires, and their own, ability, own des- desire to be, like God, to be like God, which was the sin in the garden in the first place. Now God has come to a man and made a covenant with him, which he says, I will uphold it for you. The, Abraham, the, the, Ab- the Abraham covenant is the covenant that lasts forever. It is the covenant that we would still stand in today. It is the covenant of faith counted to us as righteousness. And we see this in Romans 4 and Galatians as well. It is clear that what follows in in Genesis 15 is that God gets Abraham to sever the animals and put them either side and God himself walks through it, not asking Abraham to walk through it, meaning that God will be the one who is severed if it is broken. As we see in Christ, he was. Christ died on the cross as the severed animal, giving his life in order for the covenant that we broke to be fulfilled. 
God takes the punishment, Christ takes the punishment on, on our behalf, and just as Abraham was saved by faith, so we are as well. This is the covenant of faith. It's no longer up to us to be fruitful and multiply in our own strengths, to spread the image of God across the world, to have His dwelling place extend, but through the strength of the Holy Spirit that dwells in us as new believers in the new covenant, we go forth with Him. With the hopeful covenant, the covenant of faith with Abraham, is, uh, is, is in some ways overshadowed by the covenant of the law or the Mosaic covenant. We know that Romans tells us that the, through the law comes death. And in Exodus 19, 1-19, not that we're reading that whole section, but you could pen that down, we see the covenant of the law given to Israel. And the covenant of the law was given so that we may know our trespasses, so that when we look at the mirror of the law, we would see that we are depraved, we would see that we are like Adam, that we are like Noah, that we are like the sons of Noah who have failed. But we have the truth of the covenant of Abraham before us, that faith will save us. Exodus 19, 3-6 says, The Lord called him, Moses, out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did in the, to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on wings of eagles and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Interestingly, we've seen a covenant of life in the beginning with Adam, and then a covenant that came from death in the decreation of Noah. We saw a covenant of life through Abraham, and now a covenant of death through Moses. The law can only bring death if you put your trust in it to save you. We need faith that's counted to us as righteousness. And we see that what will follow as soon as uh, Moses comes down the hill with the tablets, we see Israel in adulterous worship. We see Israel complain, although they were born on wings of evil, that God brought him out with a strong right hand, although they saw miraculous signs more than any probably generation has ever seen, they whinged and complained and if you read Exodus again, you will notice so heavily how much they sin against the Lord their God. And the law was given in order for their trespasses to increase, that we may see just how vile and depraved the human race is and how far we have fallen from the Garden of Eden. But with the covenant of death or the covenant of law comes a saviour. First Joshua, the name Yeshua means pretty much Jesus as a shadow, foreshadow. But even later, David, who has a covenant himself. In 2 Samuel 7, 10 to 15, we see the Davidic covenant. And it's the covenant that gives us the offspring who will conquer the serpent. It says, 
And I'll appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they will dwell in their own place and be distributed no more, disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel and I'll give you the rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I'll raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I'll establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him and the rod of men with the stripes of the sons of men." But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. We see the covenant which builds upon the covenant to Abraham, that Abraham will have an offspring who will crush the serpent's head, Although it wasn't Isaac, but Isaac foreshadows the death of Christ carrying his own wood up to his sacrifice. It wasn't Solomon who built a temple for the Lord, although grand and glorious it was, but it was Jesus who built an everlasting temple and established an everlasting kingdom through his church, his bride, his people. David defeated enemies. Christ defeated the final enemy, sin and death. In this covenant, we see the hopefulness that Christ will build a house for the Lord that will never come down. It won't be like the temple that Solomon built that got destroyed, or the temple that was built later by Herod that got destroyed, but this temple will last forever, for it is a spiritual temple built from his people. We see these covenants today fulfilled in Christ. And we see Jeremiah speak forth of them in the New Covenant. We don't have time to look at Jeremiah 31 to 33, the full chapters. But if we did, we could see that in Jeremiah 31 to 33, each of these covenants is mentioned in some form or another. Reading the passage we read at the beginning, it says in verse 31 to 34, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers. On the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I'll make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I'll write it on their hearts, and I'll be their God, and they shall be my people. No longer shall one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I'll forgive their iniquities and I'll remember their sin no more. And in Jeremiah 33, 19 to 20, it says, The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Thus says the Lord, If you can break my covenant with the... If you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night, so so that the day and the night will not come at this appointed time, Then also my covenant with David, my servant, may be broken, so that he shall not have a son to reign on his throne. And my covenant with the Levitical priests, the Levitical priests, my ministers. And the host of heaven cannot be numbered, and the sands of the sea cannot be measured. 
So I will multi- multiply the offspring of David, my servant, and the Levitical priests who minister to me. The new covenant in which God will write the law upon their hearts, that they will be his people, that he, they will not be able to wander off and break his command, for he himself will hold them because he has forgiven their iniquity and will not remember their sin anymore, is as firm as day and night. If we could stop day and night from coming, if we could say this night, tonight will not come, or tomorrow morning will not come, then we could say that David's son will not reign forever and ever. But we can't. The covenant is as sure as the day. The covenant is as sure as the night. The host of heavens, which is a reference to the, uh, Abraham's covenant, is that there will be a multitude as many as the sand, a multitude as many as the heavenly host, the stars, and David will have a servant on his throne who will both be king and priest. The new covenant is bound up within the old covenant. Without the old covenant, we do not understand the new covenant. Without the covenant of Abraham and David and Moses, the new covenant is utterly empty. We need to spend time pondering these covenants as it fills us with great joy and hope that from the beginning God had a purpose and plan that His dwelling place would extend over the whole earth. It will happen. It is a sure thing, as sure as the morning, as sure as the night, that Christ, the better David, the better Moses, better than the law, better than Abraham, better than Noah who built an ark, better than Adam. Jesus himself is the one who was crucified, died and was buried and rose from the dead. He's the ark in which we sail safely over the wrath of God. He is the one who fulfilled the law everlasting. He is the one who stands on the throne of David forever and ever. And he is the one who has built the everlasting temple, his church, you and I. May we hold on to the covenants as God's mission, knowing that He is building His people that will extend across the globe. And may we go forth as His people, loving His law as we are called to because it has been written upon our heart. Let's pray. Gracious Father, Your Word is everlasting. From the beginning of Genesis 1, To Revelation 22, Lord, we see such a beautiful story being written that is still being written today as you build your church and the gates of hell not prevail. As we pray, Lord, let your kingdom come, your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. We know that that is as sure as tonight and it is as sure as tomorrow. May we never waver. May we never think that your mission is not going to be achieved. For Lord, we see that our King of Kings, Jesus, has conquered the grave. Lord, His blood has washed us. We stand not in the might of another man, but the God-man, Jesus Christ. His blood is better than Adam, because it is spotless, without sin, without depravity, without any of what you destroyed the earth for in Noah's day. Lord, I pray that as we think of the mission of God, we would forever see your church being built in holiness, being built in number. And Lord, would we be a part of that process as we proclaim with our mouth and live out with our lives the gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray this in your name. Amen.